The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Politics requires complex and ongoing engagement by all of us. There are lots of elements that hang together. You know, the Brexit process has really highlighted that whatever we decide to do, that has knock-on consequences, and those knock-on consequences have knock-on consequences of their own, which might come back and affect our original decision that everything is connected and we're never going to have something that's going to make everybody happy. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Many of you probably heard Liz Truss is the latest Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. She is now the fourth Prime Minister since the Brexit referendum in 2016. Her election was preceded by the resignation of the very charismatic Boris Johnson, who served as Prime Minister for a little bit more than three years. Now, many political observers saw parallels between Johnson and Trump, so his resignation has been viewed as almost like an alternative window for those who wanted Congress to remove Trump from power. In reality, though, it's a lot more complicated than that. The British parliamentary system has its advantages, but also its disadvantages. In particular, I felt the need to explore how political dynamics affect the selection of its highest political office. So. I reached out to Simon Usherwood to help us better understand Johnson's resignation and the recent election for Prime Minister. Simon is a professor of political and international studies at the Open University. Some of you might remember him as a co-author of The European Union, A Very Short Introduction. He's also the editor of a new volume called The Nested Games of Brexit. I thought this concept of nested games was a perfect way to think about recent events in British politics. So we'll talk a little bit about this concept as we discuss Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, and Liz Truss. But I'd like to take just a brief moment to thank everyone who has provided ratings and reviews, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. The podcast is just five ratings away from 50 on Apple, and only two away from 20 on Spotify. So please help out and leave a five-star rating if you haven't already. Ratings on other apps are also very appreciated, and word of mouth is always effective as well. Now, let me add one more thing. This interview was recorded last Tuesday before Liz Truss had won. Her victory was widely expected, but it really wouldn't have affected the conversation anyway. 
Still, I just wanted to make it clear why we might mention the upcoming prime minister election or that Boris Johnson has a few more days in office. Anyway, with that said, here is my conversation with Simon Usherwood. Simon Usherwood, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, Simon, Boris Johnson is the current prime minister, at least for the next few days. And I feel that he's been a figure who's been very important to British politics for a long time. And it's hard to really set just a beginning for when to talk about Boris Johnson. But I think that a good place to start might be with the Brexit campaign, where he really is one of those central figures, I feel like, who starts to disrupt party politics. Can you explain a little bit about Boris Johnson, his importance to British politics, and the role that he played in this Brexit campaign? Johnson's a really odd character politically in that if you look at his revealed preferences in terms of what he actually does, he's actually quite liberal if you look at him in the long run. Already before the, the referendum, he was already challenging assumptions about what was possible politically when he won the race to become mayor of London. So London is a very left-leaning city historically. And here he was, somebody standing under a conservative flag, winning not one, but two terms in the mayor's office. So showing that he could do that, that he could reach a group of voters that were not normally there for the Tories, I think was really important part of that kind of mythology and this idea that he's a, a uniquely successful electoral campaigner. But for me, the key thing is that Johnson is not somebody who is viscerally anti-EU. His early career was as a political journalist. He was based in Brussels. He used to return very colourful copy about kind of all kinds of crazy stories coming from the EU, which were lapped up by the press because EU politics is boring, which is one of the reasons I like it. And you know, here was this guy coming with very funny pieces, you know, and very silly stories. And Brussels bashing is uh, always going to get you some traction in the, in the media. But it wasn't really deeply felt. It was more, oh, this is all a bit stupid. And I think we have to remember that his choice to go with the Leave campaign in 2016 was exactly that. It was a choice. He himself weighed up the options. You know, he famously wrote two articles, one in support of membership, one against, to see, you know, kind of work through his thoughts. And then he went with the one that he felt was stronger, which was the leave one. Now, that tells you something a bit about how he's approached this. And it also, I think, tells you something about his motivations in all of this, that for him, his personal project has always been to be important, to be prime minister to be well. In his childhood, he talked about becoming world king. So I don't think he's quite going to manage that. But you know, he's had a fair crack of the whip in all of that. So for him, identifying with the Leave campaign, I think he saw the potential to make a name for himself, that he knew that Cameron would have to step down if he lost, and that if he, Johnson, were a key figure in that Leave campaign, he would be very well placed to step in and take over. And that would have been what would have happened in 2016 if he hadn't been stabbed, not so much in the back, but multiple times in the front by his close supporter, Michael Gove. So that's what let Theresa May come through. 
But this opportunistic kind of approach of Johnson, I think, really has set a lot of the tone for what's happened since. Because even when he wasn't in number 10 as prime minister, he was pushing and prodding May around the edges because partly he was speaking for a constituency, but also he saw the potential that May was not long for her time in office and he wanted the job that she would be vacating. And ultimately, he got that in 2019. So I think here, Johnson is driven primarily by his self-advancement rather than by any grand ideals. And I think the mark of that is when we get a new prime minister, I do not think that Boris Johnson is going to be pushing for a particular set of policy issues, either on Brexit or indeed on anything else. I think he'll be happy to go back into becoming a media commentator. He will doubtless write a a book that will sell very well and have a regular column in newspapers and pop up on the TV all the time. But I don't think he's actually interested in becoming influential in order to sell a project. And I'm sure listeners can think of other politicians in other countries who might well take the same kind of approach, you know, that they want to be the man, and it always is a man, rather than that they have some kind of thing they want to be doing for the greater good or for anyone's good other than their own. It seemed to me that when he took the side of the levers, that it wasn't just a sense that he expected it to win, that he expected that side of the referendum to come out in the election itself, but that even if it lost, he thought that he was going to have political advantages, that he would represent this large constituency, that even if David Cameron remains as prime minister for some time, it was going to put him in a very strong position in the future. So he saw it as a win-win, that if the referendum won, David Cameron would be out of the picture. And if the referendum lost, or rather if the levers lost, that he was still going to be in a strong position of representing a very large constituency that was going to think of him as more or less one of the key leaders of that movement. Yeah, I think there's certainly a lot in that. And again, this is, I think, an important difference from the American system that the presidency is locked into its cycle. And to break that cycle is essentially impossible. Best case, you manage to remove a president and then you get the vice president and, you know, you stick with your terms in office. In the UK, that doesn't apply. You can change prime ministers twice a week if you wanted to. And let's not get to that. But there's the potential in the system that if the governing party or coalition decides that they're changing leaders, they change leaders. And, you know, we're going through an extended process here again in 2022, same as we did back in 2019. And we had a shorter process, you know, Theresa May was moved from not looking to become prime minister to becoming prime minister in about six weeks. You know, so you can do it actually very quickly if you want. You can do it even more quickly than was done in 2016. So that opportunity to step in to fill a gap that's suddenly become available is just not there in the American model. And that's both a strength and a weakness. The weakness is that, you know, you can always be kicked out by your party rather than by the legislature as a whole. But the strength is that it should make for leaders who are more responsive to their party's needs, that you need to keep your party behind you. Otherwise, there's always somebody uh, willing to kind of throw a stick in the spokes and 
try and uh, get rid of you and step into the breach. So why did the Conservatives eventually select Boris Johnson as their prime minister? Because it sounds like there's both a lot of people who wanted to leave the European Union that very much supported him, but I'm assuming that there are a lot of people that wanted to remain within the European Union that supported Cameron and May that would not want to select Boris Johnson. So why did they ultimately decide to pick him to represent their party and to become the prime minister of the United Kingdom? An important starting point in this is to remember that when we're talking about choosing a prime minister, we're not talking about the electorate as a whole, and we're not even talking about that many people. In the first instance, it is members of parliament who are deciding. So members of parliament for the Conservative Party. They're the ones who gatekeep this whole process. And if the Conservatives decide that they're going to get a new leader, then it's first of all the MPs who whittle it down to the last two candidates, and then it's thrown open to the party membership, which is about 100, 150,000 people around the UK. You get to vote and they choose. So the electorate here is not representative on pretty much any level. So I think that's an important point. And I think the Conservative Party, by the time of Theresa May starting to lose her authority, which was already six months in when she had her snap general election in 2017, the party had swung quite heavily behind leaving. So leaving was what the party was going to be doing. And so there wasn't really a question about, are we going to revisit this question? But the decision to choose Johnson was essentially informed by the fact that May had recognised that she had run out of road, that she didn't have a parliamentary majority for any option with negotiations with the European Union. And the only thing she could do to try to swing some more rebels in her own party behind her plans was to say, I'm stepping down. So now you'll get rid of me, you'll get some other leader, but just the price of that is you need to help me get through the next stage of the process. And she failed in that as well. What Johnson offered was a way through what was a major blockage in the political system, that he was the one who said, I will get Brexit done. So, you know, he loves his three word slogans. And, you know, in the referendum, it was taking back control. And now in 2019, it was get Brexit done. And that works at many levels, mainly because most people were so sick of hearing and talking about Brexit that they just wanted to not have to talk about it anymore. And that was very independent from what kind of Brexit it might be or how it might be done. They just wanted it out of their lives. It's like the, the housekeeping, you know, you don't want to do it, but it needs to be done. So he, he didn't actually really have a plan for getting it done. And ultimately, what he did practically was make another concession to the EU and then sold it as a big win, which was enough to convince fellow MPs that this was worthwhile. The boost he had to a standing allowed him to go for a general election, and he was able to exploit the kind of the disunity of opposition parties who didn't like the plan that was on the table, but they didn't have a better alternative. And, you know, he smashed through a lot of the opposition with that 2019 election. Huge majority, historically speaking, 80 seat majority. So insulated from internal rebellion, high personal stock, able to basically steamroller through a package, which was not really that different from what uh, Theresa May had put together. But 
able to present it as a win and to move things on. And ever since that point, at the end of 2019, early 2020, was able to trade on, you know, I've got Brexit done. Even though he mentions that, even as he says, there are still lots of problems with Brexit and how it's been done. And when he finds out who's negotiated the deal that he's complaining about, he'll be furious. So for him, Brexit was his calling card. You know, he was able to say, I campaigned for it, I delivered it. Basically, I cut through all the problems that my predecessors had and, you know, sorted this out. And then that was it, really, for Brexit. You know, he didn't really care about the consequences or the ramifications of it that have been very extensive and multiple. And frankly speaking, COVID was a very helpful development in that sense, that it gave an obvious alternative focus it gave a reason for why things might be economically problematic or politically problematic. Well, you know, COVID's changed the world and it has, but it's changed the UK even more because there's also been this very major disruption that's uh, followed through from the decision to leave the EU. And he's also taken advantage of Russia's invasion of Ukraine to look like a strong leader on the international stage. He's gotten a lot of support from the Ukrainian government because he's seen as a very strong ally of Ukraine. I mean, there's a lot of different issues where you can think of Boris Johnson's record as prime minister as being very mixed on different things, where there are some things that he did better, some things that he did very poorly, and some things that at the end of the day are kind of in between the two. But he wasn't really brought down by the policies. He wasn't brought down by anything that his government did in terms of legislation. Can you talk a little bit about the series of events that eventually brought about Boris Johnson's actual resignation? Gosh, that's a huge topic um, because there's so much. You know, the fundamental thing is that Boris Johnson can't help but being Boris Johnson. A key part of what makes his charismatic model work is that he knows that it's ridiculous that he's in this position that he's prime minister. It's that metaphorical and sometimes literal wink to the camera is like, you can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm doing this, but we're going to do this anyway. I think of it as quite a British style of humour, you know, that it's just like he can never quite take it seriously. And the most painful things to watch from him are the things where he's trying to be sincere or, you know, he is being sincere. And it's just like, this isn't you, you know, it's not what you do. You know, he, he's a lifetime of experience of that kind of dry British humour, the waspish asides, you know, the snippy little comments. And people like that, you know, they think that politicians are boring and, uh, you know, that they're reserved and, you know, careful about what they say. And here's a guy who's saying seemingly whatever comes into his mind. Again, listeners may think of other examples of that kind of thing. And it works because, you know, it's a person who is like them, even though so obviously it is not a person like them. You know, this is a person of a very privileged upbringing who's had life experiences that are not life experiences that the rest of us have had. And yet he's able to kind of make that kind of connection. You know, the guy you want to go and have a, a drink with in the pub in a way that you would never want to sit down in a pub with Theresa May because that would just be so boring. She'd be awkward, you'd be awkward. You know, you don't get that with Boris Johnson. So for him, I think this inability to treat things seriously ultimately is at the root of what brings him down, that throughout his time in office, it became apparent 
didn't really see why he should follow the rules. You know, the rules of democracy, as much as, you know, specific, this is how you must run your office or the records you keep or the rules you should be following. But just like the rules of the game, you know, it's a very tempting thing to do that, you know, you think you can charm your way out of it. That kind of classic British private school education that, you know, you've got an answer for everything. You can give the broad smile. You say, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, Let's move on. No, it doesn't really matter. And at one level, it doesn't really matter. But ultimately, it does catch up with you. And for Johnson, what we saw was this unraveling during COVID where you know, what he was doing in policy terms was all right. And I, I'd actually question, you know, saying, you know, he did some things well, because apart from Ukraine, I can't actually think of anything he has done particularly well. COVID response was particularly dubious. Economically, he did very little. Brexit is highly problematic. So he ends up kind of bending the rules. And, you know, what we have is ultimately, and possibly ironically, a whole series of scandals around him basically breaking the rules of holding parties in number 10 for his staff, which, you know, he kind of twists and slips and evades. And, you know, it's like it's a work event, but it turns out to be a work event with 20 people and 40 bottles of wine and catering, most of which is in liquid form. All of these kind of things, which just, you know, he can never quite bring himself to say, I've messed up here. And I need to take the rap for it. It's always like, I've got a reason for it, or the wording's ambiguous. At some level, it becomes very legalistic. You know, it's that kind of Clintonian, it depends what the meaning of is, is kind of line where you just look really shifty. And with that, the impact of that was not immediately with MPs as such, because I think MPs always knew exactly what kind of guy Boris Johnson was. It's more that voters who also knew exactly what kind of person Boris Johnson was realized or decided that they weren't prepared to put up with this kind of thing anymore. And you see this collapse of his personal support. And for Johnson, that's critical because, again, going back to what we said before, he's not somebody who's got an ideology. There's no Johnsonism. He doesn't have a project. And because he doesn't have that ideological grounding, he doesn't really have a natural constituency within his party. So he doesn't have people who will stand by him, whatever. It's very opportunistic. And opportunism works well when you're on the up. But when you're on the way down, you don't have that safety net. And so very quickly, those who supported him were not prepared to stand by him anymore, and not helped by him throwing pretty much everyone under the bus in trying to get out of all of these scandals, whether that's uh, members of his private office, members of his government, members of his cabinet, you know, serious people. And he was happy to just like make them go out and do interviews and then half an hour later completely undermine what they've said or contradict what they've said. And you know, at some point, you're going to have enough of that. And ultimately, that's what's brought him down is that his unreliability his slipperiness became a liability too far. And for MPs, their awareness that we're coming round to a point in the electoral cycle where we have to start thinking about what can we show for our efforts to the electorate, particularly when this government's talked so much about rebuilding the economy out of COVID, making the most of Brexit opportunities, levelling up, which is this big kind of project, the cost of living crisis, which was coming through back in the spring, all of that 
the government didn't really have anything to show and didn't look like it was going to have anything to show. And I think that, coupled to Johnson's just running out of steam, is what did for him that, you know, a bit like David Cameron, you know, once he was there as prime minister, it wasn't that he had a project for it. It was just that he wanted to be prime minister. And the tiresome trouble of actually doing some governing didn't really interest him. Now, Simon, as we've been talking about Boris Johnson's rise and fall, I can't but help think of this concept of nested games that you've introduced through this edited volume, The Nested Games of Brexit. But I think of Boris Johnson's efforts within Brexit, really the way that he's kind of operated as a prime minister, but even more than that, the way that the politics of who's going to be the next prime minister have really played out following Boris Johnson's resignation, I feel like fall into this concept of nested games. It just jumped out to me. It reminded me of this book that you've recently published that's based on a series of articles. Can you explain what are nested games so we can introduce this concept? Sure. Basically, the idea is that you can think about political interactions and decisions as a set of games so that there are some different players, so different people, different organizations, and they will gain or lose different things depending on what the outcome is. And that if you do that, you then theoretically can model what the optimum outcome might be. And listeners will probably have heard of the prisoner's dilemma, you know, two prisoners locked up separately, the police offer them the opportunity to rat out on the other one. And, you know, what's the optimum strategy for them to do? So that's an example of a game. But politics is not that simple. The nested game idea basically says that people or politicians are playing more than one game at a time. That in this context, if we're thinking about how the Brexit process went, the negotiations between the UK and the EU, there's a game between the UK and the EU, but also the British players are also playing their own game of kind of domestic politics, just as the EU member states are doing their own games. And so things that might make sense in one of these arenas might not make sense in another. And more importantly, they might drive suboptimal decisions in the other arena. So if we assume that national politics is the dominant area, you know, that for politicians, their national system is where things that matter happen. Other arenas, other games become secondary. And a big problem in the Brexit process was that the British side kept on making decisions that made sense for domestic priorities, whether that's about personal advancement or about parliamentary arithmetic and what might get through, or about the domestic needs of the country, without thinking about what the impact of those decisions would be in the interactions with the EU. So then going to the EU and saying, we want to do this, or we've decided we're doing this, and the EU saying, well, we're not doing that. So in essence, it's not really about modelling as such that we've talked about it in this collection. It's much more about thinking about it as a, a way of thinking about that connection. So in the same way that you know, US politics foregrounds the national, tends to background the international, 
The same happens in the UK and in pretty much every country. That disconnection between what's the right thing to do globally and what's the right thing to do locally is always there. So, yeah, for Johnson, the decisions he made were driven arguably more by the game of maintaining and advancing his career personally than they were about what was right for the UK, let alone what's right for UK-EU relations. So it's really thinking about, you know, what's the dog and what's the tail and who's wagging who in all of this. And that's probably, I think, a, a good place to start with thinking about this kind of model. Yeah. In politics, they oftentimes refer to people who are playing chess while everybody else is playing checkers. And I kind of think of it that way, the way that we throw around terms like political calculus. And I think nested games really starts to ask the question, are the politicians really not looking at politics as almost like an arithmetic, but really the type of math that they're doing really is calculus, that you're looking at derivatives rather than just algebra. So that the decisions that they might be making might look like they're very poor directions to go, that they might be like committing political suicide, but turn out that they're making very savvy political decisions because they might be working towards a specific base, or it might be applying to a certain demographic group, or it might be positioning themselves for different type of outcomes for their careers into the future. It's just a much more complex and nuanced way of thinking about political decisions than oftentimes we do when we just look at public opinion polls. Yeah, I think you can think about it even more simply. One of my kind of axioms of thinking about the analysis that I do is that I don't ever want to be in a position where my working hypothesis is that somebody is stupid. And I know that this axiom has been tested almost to destruction in the last decade on occasions, but I have to assume that somebody who is in a position of authority has enough sense to have got into that position of authority and knows what they're doing. So, you know, I, I think people don't do things for stupid reasons. They make decisions that are sensible to themselves. And that's really what you're saying as well, is that if something doesn't make sense to us, it's more likely that we haven't understood what makes sense to them rather than they've done something that is nonsensical. So again, it's a very subjective kind of way of approaching things. And so let's take an example from British politics at the moment. So we're just at the end of the new leadership contest. We've got the two candidates and the front runner, Liz Truss, is not doing television interviews. So she's not doing a sat piece, sit down, extended format interview with anyone. She hasn't done one at all during the campaign. Now, in national terms, that's really bad that we've got somebody who's going to be coming in to several crises, cost of living, energy prices, Ukraine, Brexit, a whole lot of stuff. And people want to know about her, particularly because they haven't been involved in her selection. So here's somebody who's going to be thrust upon them by a very small electorate as their new prime minister. So it's very bad for her in that context. But it makes complete sense that she is not in a position at the moment to be able to say what she's going to do about any of these crises, because she's not had access to all of the materials. She doesn't know quite how you know her new government is going to be formed together, and quite what the situation is going to be like when she's in power. So why make hostages to fortune, promises that she will regret one way or another, 
and she's ahead in the polls. She's probably going to win. So why rock the boat? She's done fine without having an interview. Why do an interview and risk it? So again, an example of just two different ways of thinking about the same choice. And both of them are true understandings, but they're only partial understandings. And I think we need to think about the motivations that are there in order to make sense of it. And I think usually that works very well. There's usually a good reason, in air quotes, for why politicians do what they do, even if it's not immediately obvious or what we would have done in the same situation. I think there's no better example than the difference between how Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss approached Boris Johnson's eventual resignation, where Sunak was one of those members who resigned that eventually brought about Boris Johnson's resignation. Liz Truss, on the other hand, chose not to resign. I mean, those are very different positions to take. She stood by Boris Johnson up until the end. And these are the two candidates that were picked by parliament to be able to go before the conservative voters, ones that took very diametrically opposed approaches to Boris Johnson. How does Nested Games explain how Sunak and Truss approached their relationship to Boris Johnson in this final moment of crisis for him? It's quite complicated to apply it because there are a number of different calculations going on. One is what's necessary to remove Boris Johnson. And so for Sunak to resign made sense because, as you're saying, one of the key posts in government, arguably the second most important after the prime minister himself, for him to resign really made the pressure that much bigger. And he did it. You know, he was one of the first to go and that opened the gates for many other ministers to do the same. So in that sense, it's in order to get to a position to be able to challenge for the leadership, Sunak's most valuable weapon was to force that change to be coming about. The trade-off is that he now has suffered a lot for that, that he's seen as stabbing Johnson in the back. And, you know, his disloyalty to Johnson, regardless of what you think of Johnson, is now counted against him by the party. By contrast, for Truss, as somebody who was much more aligned with Johnson's agenda and politics as much as it existed, and you know, who always saw herself as a kind of a continuity Johnson candidate, which sounds a bit rude, but we'll pass on that aspect. As the continuity candidate, she couldn't be seen to be disloyal to him in that same way. And you know, she came up with this very thin reasoning that because she was foreign secretary. It was essential that she stayed in post because the country needed her to be there. She said that, and then she immediately left a G20 meeting in Indonesia, I think, came back and wasn't heard of for the rest of the time until Johnson resigned. So, you know, the things we say and the things we do are not the same. So for her, building a base required her to stay in. So she could say, well, I stood by Johnson and I think, you know, he did a good job and hoping to pick up those people who would be there, making a gamble that even though Johnson's stock was down, he still would be reaching parts that others wouldn't. And that ideally, if he endorsed her, that would be helpful. And he's done that very indirectly, but effectively. So for the two of them, they have different positions that one's thinking about how do we get Johnson out? And the other's thinking about, well, how do I get in? And so for them, they're playing it in two different ways. They're playing two different games. 
they each seem to have succeeded in those games, but because one game is prior to the other, Sunak now pays the price for winning in that one game when it comes to who goes forward from the two. So yeah, you can start to see here a bit how choices have consequences and you really have to ride your luck a bit. You know, and that's obviously where Johnson, I think, always had a you know, a great degree of success that, you know, sometimes you get lucky and that's fine until your luck runs out and then you're left high and dry. Yeah. And there were a lot of people that put their head in the ring to become prime minister that didn't make these final two. It's remarkable that the two that are left, the two that are remaining for conservative voters to choose between are almost the archetypal person who set off the string of resignations, if you will, Rishi Sunak. I don't want to say the first, but he was among the first and among the most important. And Liz Truss, who's one of the few not to resign, because many, many cabinet members did resign. They didn't make the same calculation that Liz Truss did. So it's interesting because they made very unique decisions. Other people made very many different types of calculations and decisions and did want to become prime minister as well and still didn't get to the point that these two people made it. Indeed. But remember that Truss has been floating around a leadership bid for a long time. You know, she had this series of receptions with parliamentarians, bids with Liz, did the same with business leaders, which I think was called biz with Liz. Uh, and I think she ran out of things that rhymed with Liz. But she probably of all the candidates, she had the most developed leadership challenge set up and, you know, was doing a lot of pretty active feeling of the ground. So as much as we can think of her as a loyalist to Johnson, it was also clear that she knew which way the wind was blowing and she was getting herself well placed. And that's what matters is, that, you know, I think when you have these leadership contests, because you can't control the timing, there's always a dilemma between getting things together and looking like you're trying to push out your nominal leader and leaving it so late that everyone else is flying off with their campaigns whilst you're still trying to find a desk to put your laptop and start going. So I think that balance, I think, was quite difficult. I think Sunak, in that sense, misjudged that he didn't really have his campaign together in quite the same kind of way. I think relied a bit more on what was favourable polling, you know, seemed to have had a good COVID pandemic, mainly because he'd spent a huge amount of public funds on furlough schemes and uh, support, and, you know, was hoping that that would carry him through, not really thinking about all the other things that people look for in a, a leader. Do nested games, is that something that's more relevant in parliamentary systems? Or... Do you feel like in any kind of democratic system or maybe even any kind of political system that we see them play a very significant role within politics? I think that it's a fairly universal kind of thing. It's not even just politics. You know, I think take your organization of choice and you see those kind of dynamics that are there. You know, I dare say that if I wanted to, I could apply it to a university setting, for example, you know, the what makes sense in your department amongst your faculty colleagues might not make sense in a meeting with the head of the college. So always, I think it's important to recognise that how you engage in political decisions and decision making is not necessarily how other people engage with it. 
you know, the purely personal level, you know, we have the same kind of thing that, you know, we think about our families and the dynamics that are there, that my understanding of my family is not the same as my family members' understanding of my family. And so when we come together and we're trying to do things, how we make decisions requires us to have an appreciation of people being in different places and, you know, having priorities that may be more or less overt in all of that. And I think one of the things that, you know, kind of has drawn me to this kind of model in this particular case is that a lot of the work I've done has been on negotiating. A key part of understanding negotiations is that how you see the world is not how your interlocutor sees the world. And the more you can put yourself in their position, the more likely it is that you'll find some kind of mutually satisfactory outcome rather than you know, just try and browbeat them into submission or alternatively just give them whatever they want. That if you want a a good kind of agreement, that kind of empathizing with your counterparts is a really important part of it. And that kind of is really what Nested Games is talking about, is saying the motivations that we have are multiple and varied. And if we can have a sense of that, then potentially we open the door to making better more durable decisions. So Simon, at the end of the day, what is this scenario, the whole scenario from Boris Johnson's resignation to the contest between Sunak and Truss? What does all of this really teach us about democracy? All of this really highlights that democracy is really difficult. That one of the reasons why British voters decided to vote to leave the EU was this slogan that I've mentioned already of taking back control, that this was presented as, uh, if you like, a political version of those adverts you see on the internet, you know, this one weird trick and you'll lose £60. That if you just vote this way, things will be better. And all of this really highlights that that's not how democracy works. Just like weight loss doesn't work through one weird trick, politics requires complex and ongoing engagement by all of us. There are lots of elements that hang together. You know, the Brexit process has really highlighted that whatever we decide to do, that has knock-on consequences. And those knock-on consequences have knock-on consequences of their own, which might come back and affect our original decision, that everything is connected. And we're never going to have something that's going to make everybody happy. The thing I fear is that the kind of the populist turn in politics, which says there are simple solutions to complicated problems, speaks to the spirit of the age, you know, that you can pick up your phone, tap an app, do a couple of things, and then a guy rocks up a couple of hours later with the thing you want in a box to your doorstep, free delivery. And that's not the way politics works. Politics requires us to deal with each other, to listen to each other and appreciate and understand what we all want and what we're trying to do. And then it requires us to find solutions that are going to work as well as possible. And inevitably, that means some people have to accept some compromises, some things that they don't like. But it requires all of us to work to a system where we can all feel that we have a say, that the decisions we reach are legitimate uh, and durable, that process really matters here. I think that's the other thing is that it's not just about good outcomes, it's about good processes. And I think in the US, as much as in the UK, we've seen that in recent years, that if you question the process, you open up a huge problem for the viability of the system. That if people don't feel that it's 
a decision reached in the right way, quite apart from whether it's the right decision, then the legitimacy and the authority of public institutions is severely compromised. So democracy's big weakness is that it requires participation. A vote on a decision about withdrawing from the EU, for example, is not enough to sort Brexit out. It requires all of us to be involved in lots of different aspects of that process and to continue to be interested and bothered. Because if we don't make decisions for ourselves, then other people will make decisions for us. And inevitably, those decisions that other people make are not going to be as satisfactory as the ones we would make for ourselves. So I think, you know, all of those things are the big questions. But for me, that's really what's been brought home by this whole process, that democracy is the ultimate positive vibe. You know, who doesn't like democracy? But democracy itself is contested in what it contains and how it works. But at the root of it, it's about participation. It's about recognizing that whatever we do, somebody's not going to be happy and we've got to work to try and help them be happy again in a way that doesn't compromise the decisions that we've already taken. Well, Simon, thank you so much for joining me. It feels like a very complicated process that is undergoing in uh, the United Kingdom right now. But uh, thank you for helping us make sense of it. And uh, again, those of you who want to actually read the book that we kind of reference, it's The Nested Games of Brexit. Thank you very much for joining me, Simon. Thank you so much, Dustin. It's been really good to have the opportunity to discuss at some more length. And I hope that the listeners find it useful. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.